good engagement begets more good engagement. The If you have a positive experience at something like the CIR, you're more likely to feel like you're capable of self-governance. You're more likely to trust your fellow citizens. You're more likely to mostly trust in government, although that's not unconditional. People were more likely to talk with their neighbors about political issues. They were more likely to write a letter to the editor. They were more likely to join local organizations. They weren't necessarily more likely to join a party or to stuff envelopes or go to a protest, um, but they were more likely to engage in their community in ways that felt meaningful and I, I think also in ways that helped them build relationships. Hey everyone, it's Jenna. I think I've mentioned before that we recorded several Democracy Works episodes pre-COVID that we have not had a chance to air since the pandemic started and we began covering COVID topics and later shifted to talking about race and Black Lives Matter. So as we have a chance, we are returning to some of those episodes that we've had in the can, as they say, in the biz. Um, this week, you are going to hear from John Gastel, a professor here at Penn State and Catherine Noblock of Colorado State University, who are the authors of a book called Hope for Democracy, How Citizens Can Bring Reason Back into Politics. And this book examines kind of the history of the citizens initiative process. They'll explain what that is and, and how it works and more broadly how deliberative democracy might be able to help overcome political polarization and those sorts of things. And I'm also excited to let you know that John and Katie will be joining us for a virtual book club on this book. Um, we will be meeting via Zoom to discuss it with them on Monday, August 31st at 4 p.m. Eastern time. So you should still have a couple of weeks, depending on when you listen to this, to pick up the book, read it, uh, and join us for the discussion. You can sign up for that at democracy.psu.edu slash book. Again, democracy.psu.edu slash book, or click on the link in the show notes. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you'll be able to join us in a couple of weeks for the book club discussion. Thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Pleasure. So uh, we are going to talk today about your new book, which is called Hope for Democracy. We'll come back a little bit later to, to why you're feeling hopeful about democracy at a time when many people are not. Uh, but the, the book um, focuses on the Citizens Initiative Review and other uh, deliberative democracy initiatives that have been uh, conducted throughout the, the U.S. and around the world. Um, John, we had you on the show uh, about a year and a half ago or so to talk all about the Citizens Initiative Review. I would encourage listeners to go back and check that out. The, the episode's called Winning the Democracy Lottery. We'll link to it in the show notes. But um, for folks who might need a refresher and, and before we really dive into to the rest of the conversation, um, can you give us a, a quick overview of, of what the CIR is? So voters in many cities and states around the U.S. and in countries around the world have to vote directly on legislation through ballot initiatives, referenda, and so on. The state of Oregon decided this was a problem because voters were underinformed, And so they created the Citizens Initiative Review first as a pilot in 2010 and then formally thereafter to give voters a single sheet of paper 
written by their fellow citizens that would help them understand the issues before they vote. So the Citizens Initiative Review gathers about 20 to 24 people for four to five days. They hear from people on both sides of the issue. They hear from experts. And they spend most of the time talking among themselves, figuring out what did we learn that we need to now communicate to voters and how do we communicate it to voters who don't have the benefit of a whole week to study Measure 73. And that page of analysis includes some key findings and what they think are the strongest pro and con arguments. And that is the information that many voters now use in Oregon before they vote. So that, in a nutshell, is the Citizens Initiative Review and why it was built and what it does. Yeah, and it, it also, uh, I think, has has had an impact on the, the people who have participated. Um, Katie, maybe you can speak to this a little bit. There's the story of a woman named Marion that kind of goes through throughout your book. Uh, who is she and, and what was her experience with the, the CIR? Yeah, Marion was just a participant. So she had had some experience with deliberation before, but she'd left feeling a little jaded. Um, you know, she'd come together for an America Speaks event where they talked about the budget deficit, and she enjoyed the conversations, but she left there feeling like there wasn't a real connection to any decision-making. Um, so she participated in the first CIR, um, went through the whole process, kind of became a believer while she was doing it. After the process was over, she got asked to be a member of the Citizens Initiative Review Commission. Um, so for a while, she helped figure out what ballot measures the CIR was going to study, um, kind of what the design of the CIR would look like, who would run it, things like that. Um, and she's been an advocate for it ever since. But she, you know, she was just an ordinary person who wanted to find some way to have an impact on her community, but didn't really see the path for that. And her participation in the CIR made her feel like she could make a difference. I think she made some friends that she wasn't expecting to make. She learned some things she wasn't expecting to learn. Um, but, but she always kind of comes back to the it was so powerful to have conversations with people that she disagreed with or that she never would have interacted with before and realized that, you know, they could learn together. They had some things in common. They could be friends. They could have civil conversations, even if they disagreed. And then at the end of it, they could come up with a good decision based on that learning rather than based on their partisan affiliations. Yeah. So let's let's pick up on uh, some of those those roadblocks that, that have prevented implementation uh, here here in the U.S., specifically um, and I think there's actually a, an example in the in the book about the, the CIR that might speak to this well. There was this group called Our Oregon. Mm -hmm. Is that right? I, I think, at least in my mind, that kind of illustrates the tension between this kind of deliberative, innovative approach and maybe some of the more like institutionalized political or like political adjacent <laughs> forces that are out there. Yeah, I think one of the biggest roadblocks to implementing deliberation is always that people who have power are reluctant to relinquish that power. Um, our Oregon is a great example of it. It's a progressive organization that, um, you know, funds citizen-centered ballot initiatives, um, liberal in nature. They do some great work in Oregon, but they were wary of the CIR because it interfered with their ability to message their initiatives to Oregon voters. So they pushed back really hard. At times, they kind of boycotted the process or attempted to interfere with it. Um, they've, they've, I think they've come around to reluctantly accepting its place. Um, but, you know, they wanted to be able to spread their message to voters in the language that was most persuasive, you know, giving them the information that was most persuasive and not giving them the information that they didn't want them to hear. So they saw the CIR as interfering with their ability to speak directly to them. So they kind of pushed back in a number of different ways. And even though, you know, one of the tie um, 
Tyrone Reitman, who was one of the founders of the CIR, even though he initially initially had connections with that organization, he quickly realized, you know, they were working at a different purpose. Their goal was not to give voters the best information possible. Their goal was to win the election, right? And so if your goal is winning, which most of our politicians' goal is to win now, right, then you're going to be reluctant to open things up when you don't know the outcome. Yeah, and and is it is it also the case that the groups like our Oregon tend to have the ear of of legislators more than people working on CIR and and deliberation type yeah, of initiatives? They're, they're organized political interests. That's their job. That's what they do day in day out. And if you displease them, they will let you know, and there can be consequences. To be clear, to be clear, the people in the state of Oregon overwhelmingly support the CIR. We have intended to write an article about who supports the CIR and look at all the – we always just throw it you know, on the back burner because we can't find anything correlated with it. It's like 80, 85 percent you know, approval. It's only the leadership of our Oregon which, who are professional initiative campaign consultants who oppose it. So they're even working against the interests of their own membership when it comes to believing in this deliberative innovation, which only gives them, you know, useful information. Do they realize that? Of course. They've seen the numbers. Yeah, they, they actually sometimes cite our research as evidence that, you know, the CIR is or isn't, you know, whatever they want it to be in a way that doesn't faithfully represent our research, but does show that they read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I guess they, they still think that ultimately the the cause that they're advocating for is is in in the public's best interest even though data might suggest otherwise. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean they believe that advocacy for their values and the policies they prefer is more important than advocacy for a deliberative democratic process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I wouldn't say that there's anything wrong inherently with advocacy. You know, advocacy has done a, a lot for our nation over the years. It's that when we you know, prioritize advocacy over everything else. When we push out deliberation in favor of advocacy and don't find a place, you know, where they can both kind of be in their own lane and do good work side by side, I think that that's when that's the problem. It's not that we need to get rid of advocacy. It's that um, it has such an oversized role in our political system. I'll give you I'll give you a concrete example that shows you exactly how they can get in their own way. The, when they boycotted the CIR, they didn't send representatives to advocate on behalf of their own issue. And what they were arguing was, let's get rid of a corporate tax loophole and give the money to schools. And what the CIR panelists quickly discovered was, it, it, that's not a thing. If you <laughs> raise revenue by getting rid of a tax loophole, the legislature can spend it however it wants. It doesn't, quote, go to schools. And they, they pushed back and pushed back. Finally, the citizens were getting so frustrated. They almost wound up opposing a ballot measure that they clearly supported because they were so insulted at what just feel like they were being lied to. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in the end, they, they said, you know, hey, look, we support this ballot measure. But the very first thing they said was, just so we're clear, this main argument is deceptive. And people who read the statement were more likely to vote against it. So I think the, our Oregon learned a little bit of a lesson from that, which is, you know, if our ideas are really so hot, we can message them using things that are closer to facts mm -hmm. than uh, relying on a, a, a catchy slogan that's going to get you killed in a four-day deliberation. Another roadblock that, that I think um, comes up sometimes is, is funding, right? So I think these, these initiatives are, are often... 
um, because they don't have support from the legislature. They're funded through philanthropic efforts. Philanthropy tends towards the new and exciting and, and all of that. Um, and so these things kind of come up and they have a couple years of funding and then the funding goes away. Uh, and then there's not that like long term institutional support. If you are in in a position in one of these groups that spend a couple of years trying to like get this thing off the ground and all of a sudden it's like, OK, funding's done. It it has to go away. I mean, how how does that that play itself out? Are they how do they think about funding when they're they're you know, figuring out how that how all these things are going to work? I'll say funding for the Oregon CIR is probably its biggest obstacle right now. Um, they were not able to raise funds for the last electoral cycle to run a statewide CIR, so they ran one, a local CIR in Portland, and local ones are much less expensive. You don't have to bring people in across the state. Um, you often don't have to house people either. Um, so part of it was you know, the organization that developed the CIR has other things that they're developing on the side too that are you know, more focused on the new or more catchy for funders. Um, but I think it's it's a huge problem. You know, there are some places like New York recently just implemented, um, you know, state funded community engagement efforts or civic engagement efforts. Um, the European Union has funds that go towards citizen engagement efforts. So I think that there's ways to build it into our funding model at the governing level. level but, you know, particularly when they were first advocating for the CIR and when they were trying to move it from a pilot process to a permanent process, we were kind of right in the middle of the recession. Um, and so the ask for government to give anything, any more money at that point was, um, it didn't feel feasible. I think now they're trying to build that into the bills so that funding is a part of the structure, but it's it's a perpetual problem. I mean, even though the cost of one of these reviews is insignificant in comparison to the money that gets spent on initiative elections. It's still money that's coming directly from the government. So it's it's been a, a hard ask. You know, we are in this this place right now where, you know, it seems like everyone is just so polarized and, and there are not a lot of people that would would have hope about, about the future of, of these things. Um, do you so where do you guys see opportunities for deliberation to to change the picture? I mean, for me, there's so many opportunities. I, I feel a little bit, we were discussing this last night, that when we talk about politics now, it's almost become synonymous with politicians, right? So when we talk about polarization, certainly our politicians are acting in very polarizing ways. But I don't think that um, most community members are as polarized as our politicians are. Um, also, though, working with you know, I work with the Center for Public Deliberation at Colorado State University, and I see folks every day, you know, willing to put in the effort to work with their community to make to make their local community a better place, to make connections, to build relationships across difference, across identities, you know, across party lines. Um, so I think a little bit of it is is just kind of recognizing the agency that we already have and building on that agency, building on that momentum, taking more power when we can find the place to take it. Um, but I, for me, I think that I have a lot of hope in the public. You know, I often lose hope in our current politicians. Um, I have real worries about the political institutions that govern at the national level. But I have I have faith in the public at the end of the day. You know, I've seen them come up with these really nuanced arguments and thoughts about initiatives. I've seen them develop really cool things happening in their communities. And I think when we just put our trust in the public and we allow them to operate in systems that bring out their best instead of bring out their worst, then they do great things.
Notice that trust is conditional. Katie just said, I think is super important. It's not that she has a blind faith in the public under any circumstance. Just let everyone vote. You know, uh, put all the legislation on their mobile phone, right? Yeah. No, she's like, it's a question of circumstance and, and the conditions in which they're participating. There's a reason that the jury sits in a box facing the judge. There's a reason that they have their own room for private deliberation. You know, there are all these things get built into institutional deliberative processes and sometimes in ways that are, are, are kind of surprising. So in Argentina, for instance, they're implementing a jury system. It was in their constitution, but they never established it because they weren't very democratic. But now they're implementing that jury and judges, some judges were initially resistant. Hey, this is my courtroom. But then a funny thing happened as juries started to become more and more commonplace, judges start to say, hey, you know what? We probably should have rules for evidence. Right. They didn't want rules for evidence when they were in charge of the courtroom. But now that there's a jury, it's like, let's have rules for evidence. So there's a funny interplay sometimes between establishing a deliberative body and actually improving the other institutions that are connected with them. So I think you see something like that with the CIR in that if you're running uh, an election in Oregon, you're going to put something on the ballot. Let's say you're a national organization. You're going state to state. When you get to Oregon, if you're hiring a good consultant, they'll say, okay, but... We might want to test out this idea with, say, a focus group and let them actually study the issue. So we might want to think about how we're going to do this beverage tax because the way we did it over in Idaho, I, I guarantee you it's not going to fly. That's fascinating, right? And those are long-term effects we hope to see in Oregon and other states. Again, that implementing one deliberative process can have positive uh, indirect effects on other institutions. Yeah, and and so, so to that point about future long-term progress. What What is the future for the CIR at this point? I know, it, as you said, it's been tried in Oregon, Massachusetts, Arizona, several other states. What What does it look like going forward? Finland, Switzerland uh, are a couple countries that have gotten very excited about it. I actually think it's, it's more likely to be adopted at a faster rate outside the U.S. If Massachusetts adopts it, you know, two is a lot different from one. Uh, Washington is talking about it again. It's been tested, you know, in, in California, Colorado, Arizona. We'll see. I, I think the redistricting commission is the hotter use of random samples right now because it, it operationalizes this idea of an independent commission uh, by getting everyone's hands out of it to an extent. There's still some screening processes and things. So I, we'll see how quickly the CIR spreads. It, it's sometimes hard to predict these things. Participatory budgeting created in yeah. Brazil you know, when it came to the U.S., there uh, it sort of percolated in Chicago. It sort of percolated in New York. Uh, one town in California went crazy with it. But then when, as Katie said, when New York passed the recent law about public engagement, that has the potential to really powerfully spread it. And it, it could spread more quickly across the country. But yeah, sorry, before you get to that, but can you tell folks what participatory budgeting is? Absolutely. <laughs> thank you. I, I apologize. Participatory budgeting is a process that uses a portion of usually a municipal budget for a public engagement process where citizens get to both come up with proposals and then finally vote on proposals for anything from improving the bathrooms in a school to creating city parks. It has spread like wildfire around the world and only recently in the U.S. shows real promising signs of growth. So again, it's hard to predict what process will take hold. But the idea that these more participatory and more deliberative processes can catch on, uh, that's very well supported. Well, 
Oh, go ahead. I think one of the other stories is that the CIR is adaptive. It doesn't have to take place at the state level. It doesn't have to take place at the national level. A lot of the pilots we've seen and one of the ways that the original organization has shifted lately is to focus on the local. That's a lot easier to institutionalize. It's a lot easier to fund. It's a lot easier to implement. Um, so I think we often kind of get excited about these big projects, um, but things like participatory budgeting are happening at the really community local level. So I think that there's a lot of stuff happening um, that are exciting, particularly when we talk about sortition and um, random samples that are more large scale. But I think that there's also a lot of exciting stuff that are at the small scale. There are a ton of municipal ballot measures that we vote on all the time, and it's a lot easier to implement them in a city than it is across the state. Yeah, and and I think as as you point out in the the book too, there's there's some correlation between participating in the CIR or or other deliberative initiatives and people's attitudes about voting and you know, what we more what we might think of as more large scale, more traditional forms of of politics. Can you talk about what that looks like? Sure. I mean, good engagement begets more good engagement. The If you have a positive experience at something like the CIR, you're more likely to feel like you're capable of self-governance. You're more likely to trust your fellow citizens. You're more likely to mostly trust in government, although that's not unconditional. One of the most interesting findings I find is that people are more likely after a CIR experience to feel like there's the possibility of change, but they don't necessarily trust their politicians more. Um, but they're also more likely to be engaged. The biggest findings we found were people were more likely to talk with their neighbors about political issues. They were more likely to write a letter to the editor. They were more likely to join local organizations. They weren't necessarily more likely to join a party or to stuff envelopes or go to a protest, um, but they were more likely to engage in their community in ways that felt meaningful and I, I think also in ways that helped them build relationships. Mm-hmm. So, so this idea of you know wanting to move past polarization and become more civically engaged like this is not an unpopular sentiment in 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 the public but you know I wonder if if part of the struggle here is like people just don't know where to start I mean starting up a, a deliberative body or even knowing what the the framework is to for how to implement one or or what to do or knowing knowing even where to go beyond just I feel frustrated and then what what is what is that that next step so uh, I would presume that uh, and and I know that that some of our listeners find themselves in this situation so what can people do yeah, some of these ideas are a little abstract at first, even the words, right, sortition, deliberation, you know, what is that about? But as people read and learn about it, they can get kind of excited. And to the extent that there's sort of a community of practitioners and researchers, they tend to be very welcoming, right? So new people are coming into this uh, area, this this area of practice, if you will, all the time and coming up with their own ideas and their own wrinkles and their own twists. And that's really part of what the story of this book is is there's a lineage from uh, kind of a creative person from the 70s uh, influencing this person right here, wrote a book in 2000. And then a couple grad students in Oregon got excited. And it, the whole thing feeds on itself in a way that's exciting. And to be clear, these deliberative innovations that we're talking about tend not to have a direct effect on what most people are thinking about when they think about politics, which is national politics and the struggle between two political parties in the US here in this country, that's a very real problem. And it's one that this process doesn't really touch directly. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. We're never going to have like a CIR to pick the next president or, you know, something like that. 
So it's funny how these ideas can percolate. The idea of electing senators directly seemed crazy until now it, of course, is what we do, right? So democracy, again, is this constant experimentation. Um, but I, I do worry that people are so singularly focused on federal politics in the U.S. that they miss what Katie's been talking about, about the community and state level, which is frankly where you see a lot more exciting innovation. Well, and there's a bigger advocacy push at the at the local level. We've done a couple of, of, of episodes recently about grassroots organizing, the, the, the Tea Party, the, the resistance, all of that. So where, where do deliberative-focused groups fit within those those types of organizations or or do they at all sure i mean with the center for public deliberation we work in concert with a lot of those organizations um in part kind of using them to reach out to a wider community so one of the programs i'm running right now i'm basically training folks to go out into their own communities and host conversations about housing and health equity um so you know we're connecting with organizations that already exist, some of them advocacy organizations, some of them service organizations, some of them just interested citizens, and asking them to go out and talk to their communities. So I think there's a way that we can combine our efforts, and and sometimes we're going to be working at cross-purposes. You know, my job is to hear what they have to say, you know, bring therefore often, you know, those groups are formed around interests, you know. So my job is to listen to those interests and listen to a bunch of other interests and then bring that back to our community so we can decide what how we feel about this larger issue. So I think that we can build systems that allow us to coordinate those efforts. Um, but it, to be frank, it's a lot of work. You know, you're organizing a whole bunch of people. Um, you're dependent on a lot of people doing their jobs well, a lot of people being open to this type of work, a lot of pushback. You know, one of the hardest things about training community members in those situations sometimes is they come in saying, everybody at this, everybody at my table is going to want this thing, or why aren't we asking this very pointed question that drives towards my desired outcome, right? But once you explain once you kind of give them the tools for listening, for talking together, once you show them the bigger picture and integrate them into that bigger picture, right, I think that that really helps. So there's there's all sorts of people doing all sorts of cool things. And our job isn't to kind of come in here and saying, you're doing it wrong and I know how to do it right. Our job is to harness that energy and figure out how to make it work productively with all of these other things that are happening at the same time. So, you know, we are uh, in a time where it feels like Democracy is just such under under attack. Particularly thinking about what's what's happening in Washington, and uh, there there are people who would argue that this has to you know all we should be focused on right now is this like partisan fight to win at the ballot box in in November. And you know while the stuff you guys have been talking about is is interesting, maybe we should just like put it on the shelf for a while and and come back to it after November. Um, so what what would you say to that? Different people want to do different things. Different people have different passions. In a highly developed society, you start to even appreciate that there are communities that play special roles. Between World War I and World War II, Quakers were begging the U.S. government to improve its policy in Europe. In particular, to frankly handle Germany differently and to work hard on peace. We saw it after World War II with the Marshall Plan. But between the wars, obviously things went terribly wrong. 
during World War II, Quakers were challenged. Why aren't you supporting the war effort? Why are you doing this relief aid and so on? And the answer that came back, a great Atlantic essay by a guy named D. Elton Trueblood was, you know what? I want you to beat the Nazis. You know, our, 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 our future depends on it. But our future also depends on me and my community continuing to be committed to a different kind of work. We're not super helpful right now, but we sure were 10 years ago if you'd listen to us. And if you do win this war, we're going to be right here. And we've got theories and ideas that you really need. So I would say the same thing during this election. Don't try to make everyone into a partisan hack. I used to run campaigns. I, my parents both ran for Congress. I, I can do that. But I found that that's not really my talent. That's not really my, my, my gifts. I, they lie somewhere else. And many people want to join me in the work I do. And Katie obviously has these communities in, in uh, Fort Collins that feel the same way. Well, let us do our work and trust that we're on to something. And the partisan work is super important, too. And don't think for a second that we don't care about who wins elections. We do. But that's not where our calling is. But I also think that they're, they're more connected than we think that they are, right? I think we often silo different types of engagement, right? You're doing activism or you're doing deliberation or you're doing get out the vote, right? In reality, they all feed on one another, right? So going to a deliberative event is probably going to make you more likely to vote in your municipal elections, which nobody votes in, right? Which is definitely going to make you more likely to vote in the presidential election. So if our goal is to get people more engaged in the political process, then we don't do that by simply telling them every four years that they have to vote right now and that's all they can do, right? So I think the more we build these opportunities for people to practice democracy, the more it becomes a habit, the more it becomes part of their life, their life and their lifestyle, um, the more they see an obligation and a commitment to their communities and to the societies in which they interact. So I'm grateful for those people that are doing voter registration drives and who are advocating on behalf of things. But I, I don't I don't see them at odds with one another. I see them as as I mean, sometimes they're obviously at odds. Right. <laughs> um, particularly when advocacy is being super strategic. But at the end, I think if there are so many different ways that you can bolster democracy and and those ways can magnify one another, they, they don't need to um, negate one another. Well, guys, this has been great. I, I appreciate your, your insights and the, the reminder that there's a lot of interesting work happening throughout the country and throughout the world. And we will link to all of the resources that you mentioned in the show notes. So, John and Katie, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.